Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. You're confident when it comes to your work and life? Rocket Mortgage gives you that same confidence when it comes to refinancing your existing mortgage or buying a home. It lets you understand all the details so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. Go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Wednesday, December 12th. I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and I'm joined via Skype by Fool.com healthcare expert, Todd Campbell. On today's show, we'll be recapping one of the most important healthcare conferences of the year, ASH, which is an acronym for the American Society of Hematology, which has 17,000 members across 100 countries. It's a very big deal. Hematology is the study of blood diseases, and investors, doctors, researchers, and patients alike all look forward to hearing the latest from companies like blood cancer heavyweight Celgene, CAR-T specialist Juno Therapeutics, and gene therapy pioneer Spark Therapeutics. We'll take a look at each of these companies' presentations from the conference, starting with the data release from Celgene and its partner Bluebird Bio in multiple myeloma. But before we do that, we're going to talk a lot about CAR-T therapy today. And in this year's ASH presentations, it was very clear that that is the next generation of blood cancer treatment. So Todd, if you don't mind, can you give us some background on CAR-T? Well, Christine, we've talked about CAR-T on the show a few times, but we could have some new listeners. So, you know, we'll just we'll try and keep it nice and easy and clean way of understanding it. It's a gene therapy. And the goal here is to uh, re-engineer a patient's immune system so that it can find and kill cancer cells. And it does this by removing the T cells from a patient's body, uh, re-engineering them so that when they're reinserted back into the patient's body, they can find specific proteins that are expressed on cancer cells, uh, and then that allows the T cells to kill them. Exactly. And so we got some very exciting news from uh, several different uh, CAR-T developers at ASH, but the first one that we wanted to talk about today was the partnership between Bluebird Bio and Celgene on a drug called BB2121 that reported some absolutely incredible numbers in heavily pretreated multiple myeloma patients. Right. We talked about this on the show back in June, Christine, when they made a presentation on early stage phase one results in just a handful of patients, um, multiple patients for the, for this CAR-T therapy that they're working on called BB2121. They updated the data that um, from that trial uh, at ASH. And wow, I mean, it, once again, uh, six months later, steals the show. Uh, delivering incredibly high overall response rates and complete response rates in a patient population that, frankly, is is uh, in dire need of new treatment alternatives. The the specific numbers for those keeping score at home, there was a 94% overall response rate um, to BB2121, and that was across 21 uh, patients. And on average, those patients, Christine, had already tried and either didn't respond or failed to respond to um, seven previous therapies. So, I mean, you're you're generating, you're talking about a, a well, 94% response rate in a patient population that you know has has really, I don't want to say run out of options, but their options have become extremely limited given how many prior therapies they've they've taken. Right. These numbers, as you said, are absolutely stunning. The complete response rate was 56%. And for reference, 
That is quite a bit for this population. Um, in comparison, Johnson Johnson won approval for their drug Darzalex with an overall response rate of 20% and a 3% complete response rate. And meanwhile, this is a drug that has an annual response rate of over a billion dollars. And so if you compare that to the numbers that we're seeing in early stages, but still in, in fairly robust numbers for BB2121, and it's easy to see why investors are getting very excited. They sent the stock up about 15% over the past week. And I believe that's even after Bluebird announced that they're going to uh, raise some money by offering new stock yesterday, which should raise them about $600 million before expenses, which <laughs> is not surprising at all. I mean, this is very common behavior for especially clinical stage companies to do after releasing positive data that sends the stock up. Yeah, absolutely. It's a cheap way to get financing to do all sorts of great things. And, and you know, what it really does is it bolsters this company's balance sheet because, you know, we mentioned at the beginning of the of, of discussing this this drug that it, there's a relationship there with Celgene. Celgene has the license to BB2121, but Bluebird Bio can actually opt in, exercise an option that will allow it to co-market and co-commercialize uh, BB2121 in North America. And I think that that's, you know, one of the reasons that they're trying to shore up their balance sheet so they have plenty of cash so that they can execute that um, or exercise that option and then share in the spoils, if you will, uh, if BB2121's pivotal trial pans out as well as, as these early stage findings and the FDA goes ahead and grants approval of it. It's a it's a major market indication. It's ripe for disruption. The kind of numbers that we, we're seeing in this phase one are just incredibly dramatic. And if, you know, I mean, we're getting the card in front of the horse here. But I mean, I, I look at this, Christine, and I say, you know, the, the typical blueprint for developing multiple myeloma drugs has been, okay, we can get to market fastest if we go for these heavily pre-treated pre patients. The FDA will expedite our review. We'll get on the market faster. Then we can conduct studies in early uh, lines, earlier lines of therapy that will allow us to to treat more and more and more patients. And so, you know, you look at these response rates and you start thinking to the future, and you're not really thinking about BB2121 just as a fourth line multiple myeloma treatment. You're thinking about the potential for it to disrupt the third line, the second line. Who knows? First line treatment someday. Um, and since we're talking about an indication where where you've got multiple multi-billion dollar um, drugs on the market already. Wow, the, the, there's reason for excitement and it's understandable. And Celgene is a fantastic partner for Bluebird to have because they have so much experience in this market already. They pretty much dominate the indication with Revlimid for the first line, which and then the second line as well, which makes about $8 billion per year. They have Pomalist in the third line, which is about a $1.6 billion per year drug. So even though 2121 would probably start out as a fourth line drug, as you mentioned, and potentially work its way up, the companies are also working on developing a next generation version of this drug called 21217, which could hopefully be Revlimid's successor someday. So really big potential uh, for these drugs. And again, kind of early stage, but it's not hard to see why investors were so excited about this news. Yeah, there have been a lot of conversations about Celgene and potential patent exposure uh, when Revlimid's patents end, end and, and possibly some getting some competition in there against Revlimid over the course of the next decade or so. And I think that, you know, this shows you that Celgene's strategy, what strategy could be for uh, maintaining its moat in this indication. As you mentioned, they get about $10 billion a year in revenue from multiple myeloma. That's a 
lot of their sales. So they want to make sure that they're the dominant player. BB2121 could theoretically allow them to do it. As an investing show, you know, it, we're, our listeners are probably wondering, well, what are the implications? I mean, does this mean that, you know, BB2121 cannibalizes Celgene's Revlimid and Pomelith sales? Or are other drugs impacted? My personal opinion is that no, not yet. Uh, Pomelis is getting studied for second line use, so it's trying to move up into earlier stage treatment. I think initially, maybe the ones that are, are most threatened by a BB2121 potential commercialization, my, my guess would be 2019 would be the earliest that you could see that, would be uh, Darzalex, which we mentioned, this is Johnson & Johnson drug, Amgen's Kiprilis, uh, uh, and possibly Bristol-Myers Implicity, uh, those drugs you know, are also trying to migrate further into early, earlier stage treatment, but they still generate a pretty good amount of their sales in the later lines. Yep, absolutely. One other thing to keep in mind about Bluebird is that this isn't all to their story. At the conference, they also released some updates on their treatments for beta thalassemia and sickle cell disease. But the 2121 news is certainly what has caused the stock to jump. And if you look at the company as a whole, they have tripled in value in the past year, which is pretty nuts. But it's evidence of the great work that they're doing. Their market cap now stands at $8.4 billion, which that holds a lot of hope. Um, and, they, and they do have their robust pipeline to support that. Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. With Rocket Mortgage, you can apply simply and understand fully so you can mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. So let's keep talking CAR-T. I want to talk about one of my favorite companies, which is Juno Therapeutics. And they did not have so great of a week if you were to look at their stock chart anyway. You know, we just talked about Bluebird Bio and how uh, they reported this gangbusters um, um, data and sent in and and shares went soaring. Well, this would be the this was the opposite scenario, right? I mean, you know, you had what I view to be pretty, pretty darn good results that were presented by Juno uh, for its CAR-T and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, yet investors just crushed the stock and sent the stock um, crumbling lower. Uh, so, you know, I think it's important for us to talk about this uh, situation for people coming out of ASH, too, because they may be scratching their heads and, and wondering, well, what's going on here? I mean, is the data good or is the data not good? And, and what does this really mean for Juno? Yep. So the drug in question is JCAR 017, which is a little bit behind its competitors, a good bit behind its competitors in terms of how close it is to market. Um, for reference, you have approved drugs, Yescarta and Kimraya working in a similar space. They're already out there and approved and being marketed, whereas 017 is not quite there yet. They uh, Juno reported that 50% of patients at the six-month mark in their trials were in complete response to the drug, and they reported that there's far better safety than you saw in the trials for Yescarta and Kimraya. 
But I think the reaction that the market had to the news really has everything to do with how high expectations were. There were rumors of a response rate as high as 70%. And so even though these numbers look fairly good and very comparable to those numbers for efficacy for Yes Carta and Kim Raya and better on the safety front, I think there's a lot of nervousness and unease that that's not going to be good enough to differentiate this drug. Yeah, I mean, you had a, res a complete response rate um, for patients with advanced non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, 50% at the six-month mark. What was interesting to me is that you had 80% of the of the patients that were in um, uh, complete response at the three-month mark were still in complete response uh, at the six-month mark. And then from the six-month mark to the data cutoff for the presentation, 92% remained in complete response. So, I mean, we're talking a pretty good durable um, um, response to to JCAR 017. And if you look at how that matches up to Yescarta, uh, which again is already approved in, in this patient population, and Kariah, which has a pending application, most people as assume that that's going to get uh, approved in this, in this indication. Um, you know, if you look at how that matches up on an efficacy standpoint, it's pretty solid. I mean, you, you get 30 to 40% complete response rates uh, over a six-month period or so out of both of those drugs. So the question then becomes, okay, well, if you didn't have as big of a separation as maybe the whisper number out there was in response rates, um, well, is the safety advantage going to be enough to convince doctors to use JCAR-17 versus a Yescarta or a Kimraya in these patients, you know, and that's that's really what it's going to come down to if this drug eventually does make it to market. It's going to become okay. I can get solid efficacy out of these three CAR Ts, um, but is one of these safer for my patients to use than another one? In my view, the data that was pre presented on JCAR-17 says yes, um, it does appear safer. There was a very low uh, occurrence rate of neurotoxicity and uh, cytokine release syndrome, which are two um, severe adverse events that have, I don't want to say plague, but they're they're much more common, uh, in at least in the trials for Yescarta and Camarilla. So I think that if this drug does make it across the finish line, that it can indeed carve out a fairly substantial pool of the money. But I guess the, the, I guess the end result here is that, you know, after looking at the data, there were some question marks about, you know, just how much of a slam dunk it could be if it gets to market. And because of that, and the market hating uncertainty, you had a lot of sell the news. Buy ahead of it, high expectations, report comes out, people sell it and move on to a next idea. I agree with you. I think that there are two more things that are making investors kind of nervous here. One is that there have been some accusations that Juno enrolled healthier patients in its trials than its competitors did, which of course the company says is not the case. The other point is that there is a renewed concern that the viral vector supply could be limited. And this is a key component to how gene therapies work. Each virus must be custom made for the treatment. Essentially how it works is that you get, you input um, the working gene into a inactive virus and then give it to the patient in hopes that the uh, the working gene will start to produce whatever the protein is missing or you know start to make up for the faulty gene in the patient. But the virus is 
absolutely essential to this process. And it turns out that very few companies have both the facilities and the expertise to make them, particularly given the huge demand because of this surge in gene therapy research. For example, Novartis signed a contract years ago with Oxford Biomedica just to give them the right to get these uh, these viruses for their gene therapy research. It ended up giving Oxford Biomedica around $200 million plus royalties. Um, and that that's for a treatment that only a few hundred patients will receive. So this is a really competitive market that honestly, I just recently learned about the shortage of demands here. And I find it fascinating. Yeah, the, the gene therapy, the, the level of research and development activity going on right now in gene therapy is, is very much so straining the availability of these viral vectors. And you have a few different viruses that are inactivated that are, are ideally uh, ideal candidates for use in gene therapy. And like you mentioned, there's not very many companies that go out there and do it. All of these companies are taking a different approach. If you Google uh, viral vector Todd Campbell Motley Fool, you'll find an article that I put out there uh, maybe two weeks ago on this subject, and I think that it kind of will go into a lot more depth than we can give give probably on the show. But I, what I guess the takeaway here is that companies are taking different approaches to try and lock up that supply because the last thing you want is a ton of demand and not being able to produce enough of these uh, gene therapies to be able to address all the patients that you need to be able to address, right? So you've got a company like Bluebird Bio, for example, recently buying their own manufacturing plant that they're going to try and bring their own viral production in-house. Uh, Juno has is still contracting for uh, it's viral vectors. I mean, obviously, with tight supply, that means that these producers of viral vectors have some pricing power. They can negotiate good deals, like you just mentioned, the one with Novartis and Mariah. Um, and that obviously can be costly to these companies. So that's something that uh, is, you're right, it's a really fascinating and interesting um, uh, unintended consequence. Eventually, you know, we'll have plenty of manufacturing to, to, to handle all of this. Uh, but for now, it is a little capacity constrained. The other thing I think people should know about um, the Juno's program, the JCAR program, is that it's also partnered up with Celgene. So Celgene has the partnership with Bluebird Bio and BB2121 we just talked about. It also has the ex-North America and China rights on JCAR 17. So if this drug does make it to market, and again, we're, we're thinking this could come to market in 2019, um, then you know Juno will benefit in North America, uh, and it will collect royalties from Celgene on XUS sales. I would love to be Celgene, just sitting back and enjoying this conference, you know, watching all of your partners present their data. And maybe maybe you're a little bit nervous because you you do get the volatility that we've seen. But I feel like on the whole, they're just kind of sitting back, like, yeah, we we have the best partnerships out there, and these companies are absolutely killing it. Yeah, and it shouldn't be ignored either, uh, Christine. We should probably throw this out too. That um, Celgene just recently upped their position. They own some of Juno. They own about ten percent of Juno's stock. So they will. Celgene will benefit somewhat from the North American sales, just from obviously their investment in the company. And of course, that raises all sorts of questions. Could Juno go out and buy the whatever? We don't. We don't know, right? Those are all rumors and speculation. Yep. All right. So for our last ASH update of the day, we are moving away from blood cancer and towards hemophilia. We want to talk about, as you phrased it, Todd, the showdown between two different companies, Spark Therapeutics, their ticker is ONCE once, and Biomarin, who we've talked about before, their ticker is BMRN. 
first off, I want to explain the ticker for Spark Therapeutics because <laughs> when this clicked in my mind, I was like, oh, that's it's, pretty cool. It's great, right? Yeah. It's really so, marketing <laughs> yep. Their ticker is, is once, O-N-C-E. And that, I presume, is because gene therapy, which is what they work on, only needs to happen once and the patient is cured for life. So if you're thinking about something like hemophilia, a typical hemophilia patient will need to regularly get treatment their entire life, which is very, very expensive. But if you can treat the underlying cause of it at the genetic level, that happens just once. Pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's potentially game changing what gene therapy may do for hemophilia patients. It's exciting news for patients. It's exciting news for caregivers. It's exciting news for investors because it really is a, a it's a shift in paradigm in how we approach treatment of this of this disease. So you know, just to give listeners a little bit of background, you've got two types of hemophilia. You got hemophilia A and you got hemophilia B. Hemophilia A is much more common. Affects about 150,000 people worldwide. B is less common, but still you know, common enough, 30,000 or so patients um, globally. And companies are developing gene therapies that can eliminate, based on trials so far, eliminate um, the likelihood of, of bleeds in these patients. And that is just amazing. So in hemophilia, A and B, patients can have spontaneous bleeds. If they cut themselves, they, they can't, their blood doesn't contain the coagulant uh, clotting factor that's necessary to clot their blood. So there's just so many um, consequences to that that negatively impact their quality of life. I mean, if you're gonna have a surgery, you have to make sure that you do all sorts of prep work ahead of time. If you if you hurt yourself, just cut yourself, you've gotta take, take that into consideration too. There's also joint damage that occurs over time because of the spontaneous bleeds. So, you know, like you mentioned, you know, you've got uh, a current treatment where it's prophylactic and you're receiving, um, basically getting, receiving infusions of the missing clotting, your missing clotting factor. And what these gene therapies aim to do is using those viral vectors we talked about earlier, introduce a functional gene that can produce the missing factors for these patients in a one and done uh, injection. And that, that could be quite remarkable. Yep. And so when you're measuring the outcomes of these drugs, you have two things that you're looking at. First of all, you have the number of bleeding events per year. And that's that's really what matters most. You know, can we can we keep these patients out of the hospital for their bleeding events? Can we improve their quality of life? Everything that goes along with that. But then you also have what's sort of an intermediary endpoint, which is is there an increase in this coagulant factor, the one that is defective or missing, deficient in, in any way? Um, and so the drug is supposed to work by making more of this coagulant factor. So it makes sense that you would measure it. But really what matters more is the bleeding events. And so at ASH, Spark Therapeutics released data about their, their drug SPK8001, which is in hemophilia A, and there was a huge sell-off, not because it couldn't control bleeding. It did. There was a 100% reduction in bleeding events, but because of concern over the factor eight production, which is the, the clotting factor that this drug is supposed to increase. Yeah, you had the activity of the of SPK8001 was, it, it ranged very widely from like 9% up to 37%, depending on where you were looking at it. Meaning more so than people, the normal level, or sorry, 30% of those normal levels. 
Right. In nor normal, in a normal person is usually defined as 50% activity to 150%. It's kind of bizarre. Think of it this way. Most clinicians, if you're, if your activity is at 12% or higher, they're going to view you as not at high risk for bleeds. The people who are enrolling in these trials conducted by Biomarin and, and by Spark, they have less than 1% activity. Okay. So in Biomarin's case, you had activity levels jump to 49%, right? So everybody looks at that and say, okay, Biomarin's drug, which I'm not even gonna bother trying to pronounce, Christine, it's just ridiculous how many letters are in this. You can go with the, the earlier clinical name, which is BMN270. Right, okay, perfect. We're gonna go with BMN270. That did eliminate bleeds, just like Sparks 8001. Um, but the activity jumped to 49%. So think about that. You've got 49%, which is just below that 50% cutoff for what's considered normal, right? Um, we already know that 12% means you're probably not at a significant risk of bleeds. Well, 8001 being between 9 and 37%, that just raised question marks for people. You know, they looked at it and said, well, yeah, it eliminated the bleeds, but is BMN270 more robust? Is it the better drug? I, I think, Christine, that it's too early to say that. And the reason that I, I make that claim is that Biomarin's in the lead. Okay, their study has been going on. It's enrolled more patients. They're more advanced in, in developing their hemophilia A um, gene therapy than Spark is. Spark is still optimizing the dosing of its drug. And it believes that through that optimization, over the course of the next, you know, until the next data readout, we'll say, um, they're going to be able to boost those activity levels. From a clinical standpoint, most clinic clinicians aren't going to really care because all they ultimately care about are the bleeding rates fall, right? So I think that this was investors kind of digging into the data, trying to figure out is one drug a better drug than another? I think it's too early to say. And as a result, my personal view is that you know the reaction in Spark Therapeutics shares, which crumbled 30% uh, plus after the ASH presentation, uh, was an overreaction. Um, and maybe even is creating a buying opportunity. Uh, the real winner, no matter what though, Christine, as I'm sure you'll agree, is patience. Because both of these gene therapies um, are, are show that we're getting much, much closer to a one and done treatment for this condition. It works. It's really incredible. I love what Spark is doing. I mean, this isn't their only drug, which makes me also very surprised that they lost a third of their market cap just about this one small detail of one of their drugs. They're also, for example, working in hemophilia B with Pfizer on another drug that also had very promising results from their phase one, two trials with highly controlled bleeding again. Um, they're also working outside of hemophilia. They have a drug called Luxturna, which is for blindness, a cure for a genetically defined set of patients who are blind. And that's expecting approval by January 12th. Meanwhile, the advisory committee to the FDA unanimously recommended approval of that drug. So I would be downright shocked if it didn't get approval. This is a drug that restored vision in 90% of patients for up to three years in trials, whereas previously they were no currently approved drugs for this treatment. So I really do think that what they're doing is absolutely incredible. And with that 33% sell-off, I am personally very interested in the stock. I think it's fascinating. I mean, I, th I think that you make a very good point about Luxturna. Um, you know, if you just, it's not a very common thing, but you know, you could treat a thousand patients 
and people are saying that this could be a, a billion, uh, a million dollar one and done drug uh, therapy. So, you know, even if you take net pricing and you think that maybe not everybody gets treated with it, you're still talking hundreds of millions of, of potential dollars in revenue for Spark Therapeutics on an approval that it can use then that use that money to help fund its other programs like the programs in hemophilia. The hemophilia B is really intriguing to me as well because, you know, Biomarin's not working on a hemophilia B right now. You're going to worry about Unicure instead, which is another company developing a hemophilia B gene therapy. Uh, but I think Spark's relationship with Pfizer gives it an edge uh, in that indication as well. Yeah, I'm very intrigued by this stock as well, uh, especially given the drop. Yep. Yeah. I think the point about Pfizer giving it its blessing is also very promising. I mean, we've said this before on the show, but that is a, a nice sign of faith that a larger company is looking at the smaller company's pipeline and saying, yeah, I want a piece of that. What you're doing yeah. looks really yeah, promising. Especially, you know, Christine, don't forget Pfizer Markets Benefits, which is uh, one of the leading um, hemophilia B drugs right now. So, yep. so you know, it's it already, already gets the, the sales team in place. Exactly. It already has those relationships. It knows what it's doing. And hey, its team understands the science. And so they are the best people equipped to look at a company that has a pipeline in this space and give it the thumbs up. All right. So it has been a very exciting week due to this conference. It is always so much fun to do uh, conference recaps with you, Todd. Thanks so much for being here today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. The show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Harges. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!